You're listening to a podcast from the Cinema Geekly Podcast Network. We're the geeks you deserve and the ones you need right now. Star Trek podcast. Chief Petty Officer Anthony Lewis reporting for duty with, of course, the Fleet Admiral himself, Ben Knight. Uh, hello. hello. Uh, okay, so uh, we've got two more short treks to talk about uh, and a little bit of hype. Talk mm. about uh, what we're thinking as far as season two of Discovery is concerned because as we are recording this, uh, it is premiering on a little over a week. I believe it's yeah. premiering on the 17th. It is 17th on um, its home network and 18th on Netflix. Netflix everywhere else in the world. Yes. Mm. Uh, pretty excited. There isn't a lot of... So there's not a lot of Star Trek news. We were actually just joking before we started recording this. That nobody's even been talking about the proposed Star Trek movie, uh, the one that would have had Chris Hemsworth returning as Kirk's father. Uh, but of course, both Chris's famously had some sort of uh, meltdown, I'm presumably over money or something, as both of them are now much bigger stars uh, <laughs> than they were previously uh, from their previous Star Trek film appearances. And I presume and that this Quentin was. started making weird. Network TV documentaries. Yeah, I I thought this was, of course, some sort of weird ploy. They'd get it all worked out. I haven't heard ever since this happened. I haven't heard a peep about that no. Star Trek movie. I, I've so uh, nobody. But else... How much do you care, given where we are with how much Trek we've got currently in the pipeline? Okay, so I will admit, because I am such a diehard Star Trek fan, that I don't not care. I care a little bit. Because I still want to see it, but I'm not obsessed with, like, why isn't it happening? Why haven't I heard anything about it? Uh, because I know that there is so much other stuff that is coming Star Trek-wise, uh, so and coming soon. But because Discovery is so close, all of the talk is surrounding that show right now, so a lot of talk about other things have kind of dissipated in the background. I only, I've only seen one blurb. Uh, from uh, an Alex Kurtzman interview with Digital Spy, this is from a couple of days ago, where he's basically talking about the Picard series, but doesn't say anything particularly interesting. I guess I'll note here some of the stuff uh, that was mentioned in the Digital Spy interview. But uh, 
In the interview, Kurtzman acknowledged that it wasn't easy to convince Patrick Stewart to return to the role, saying that getting him to say yes was its own amazing thing. Uh, he gave some details on what motivated Stewart's change of heart. Uh, this is the quote from that interview. Patrick needed to make sure that we were coming from the right place and that we wanted to protect what Next Gen means to so many people and what his character specifically means to so many people. And that was really about several conversations back and forth, exploring his instincts, our instincts. Ultimately, our job is to make him feel comfortable and safe and to protect the show and shield it from anything that would break it in the wrong way. Uh, he noted that Patrick Stewart was very hands-on. He was in the writer's room for two weeks at the beginning, mm -hmm. uh, sitting in with the writers and talking about what they wanted the show to be. Uh, and they note that Patrick still sends them emails about what he feels like, uh, about what Picard, uh, is where he feels Picard has been since mm -hmm. Star Trek nemesis. Uh, the, uh, the series is expected to be set 20 years after Nemesis, putting it at 2399. And uh, when talking about canon, uh, Kurtzman very vaguely said, it's fun to think about how to connect to canon while freeing yourself from it technologically. We are still mm. exploring that. That's a deep dive. That takes literally a year to figure out. Uh so, yeah, uh, that's kind of it. That's literally all there is for Star Trek news. Uh, the blurb <laughs> from this interview. But you Good know, night, everybody. Still, okay. <laughs> that's it, everyone. Uh, there were some shorts. Uh, but, yeah, the, uh, uh, the general sense I get from this, uh, and I have a lot of faith in this, largely riding on the fact that Patrick Stewart has been so heavily involved in this. Uh, I'm really excited for this show. I'm not sure what it's going to be exactly, but pretty excited for it, nonetheless. Amongst, amongst a large swathe of Star Trek fans, um, his endorsement in the process rather than just the product is, um, is going to count for a lot in terms of credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're talking about that show uh, airing uh, in late 2019. Yeah. So uh, last quarter of 2019, at some time in there, uh, the Jean-Luc Picard show will air. I'm very excited for this. <laughs> is that the working title? Yeah, I hope it is. <laughs> the Late Show was Jean-Luc Picard. It's just he's on Price, that'd be an improvement on the current dickhead, wouldn't it? He's a He's on Federation TV, just doing a late night show. <laughs> I think it'd be excellent. Uh, all right, so let's talk about uh, the final two short treks that were released. So uh, in our last episode, we talked about episodes one and two of the short treks, Runaway and Calypso. And uh, now we're on the, uh, the bottom half of these two. So let's start with... Short Trek number three, The Brightest Star. This one featured uh, and circled around entirely Saru. And it says young Saru. I, I'm really not sure how Kelpian's age, because he basically looked like Saru does now. He didn't look any smaller or younger in any way. Uh, it's supposed to be about a decade before the flashback that you see in Battle of the Binary Stars, according to um, 
the writers. Yes. And, uh, you know, but they perhaps Kelpians age differently than humans, of course. Mm. Uh, so young Saru of the planet Kaminar is curious. He wants to learn about life outside of the pre-warp society of his village. Uh, unhappy with the knowledge that he, like all Kelpians, will eventually be harvested as food for the predatory Ba'ul. Uh, although, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but it's not how I pictured it happening. Uh, Saru manages to send a distress signal into space uh, because a piece of the Ba'ul ship had broken off, and because Saru is uh, much smarter, as it turns out, than many of his his fellow Kelpians. Uh, He manages to send a a signal into space, which is answered by the USS Shenzo, and uh, Saru uh, meets the person who receives his signal, a then-lieutenant, Philippa Georgiou, and uh, she offers to take Saru back with her, but he can never return. Uh, He decides to... I mean, obviously, he decides to do this because, you know, he's in the show, Ben. Uh, <laughs> what did you uh, what did you think of The Brightest Star? I really like this. Um, the It depends how much of a, a deep read you want to make of it. I like that this was surprising. Um, the Kelpians, we've heard a bit about them. If you've read any of the books uh, so far for Discovery, you've heard a bit more about them. Um, but even with that, as you said, it's not quite how... Uh, maybe one first imagines a, I guess a, a cattle race, uh, which mm-hmm. is sort of the impression you get from uh, the first season of Discovery. I thought they were so, literally hunted by the Ba'ul or something, but yeah, um, or, or kind of bred for food, basically. Yeah. Um, so the the kind of religious aspect, I yes, I find this interesting because the it was almost accepted. I mean, Saru's family obviously have a direct involvement in that process of passing up uh, the members of their species uh, to those who consume them. But mm-hmm. I thought that was quite interesting. At the very top of that ritual, um, the I, I don't think it was... Yes, it was his father. His father says, uh, you know, he's explaining that that's the place. And his father clearly has a grasp that this isn't about religion or faith. This is about a balance because they are effectively a captive race. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that if you want to talk about, you know, ooh, traditionally lefty messages coming out of science fiction, here's one. <laughs> um, because Saru is the smartest person on his planet because of his atheism, if that's correct. Because the only, thing that yeah. Stands, yeah, the only thing that stands between him and the slavish devotion to the balance and the... Uh, the religious ritual here. Yeah. This is understanding that, hang on a minute, at the other end of this religious rit- ritual, there's no gods. These are simply another race. And like he says, you know, they don't have wings either. So yeah. he, that, that's the thing that, um, that, that frees him of his, uh, shackles of sort of inevitable, uh, consumption, yeah. um, uh, by the others. So I, I, I obviously that, that, that's uh, kind of in my wheelhouse. I, I enjoy that message that comes through this. Mm. In terms of a piece of um, television, I actually think it, it's quite moving in places. Mm-hmm. The scene between Saru and uh, and Philippa Georgiou, mm. um, I, I don't know whether that's just because, obviously, you know, we're 
starved of Star Trek and, uh, for, a, for a little while yeah. or what. But I actually found that that was... I, I, I thought it was a, a one of the best examples of a first contact that I've seen in um, Star Trek. I I like the idea that Georgie had to, you know, kind of bend the rules a bit. She had to go down a different channel to go and rescue uh, Saru. And it's interesting as well. I did rather think, you know, given how evolved the Federation becomes by the time you hit DS9 and Voyager and stuff like that, um, I was trying to imagine if uh, they would ever get that sort of permission from Starfleet yeah. At some point, that far down the future, as in you know, by the Voyager and so on era, mm-hmm. Voyager bent the rules because of where they were. But in the DS9 era, I, I'm not sure that Philippa Georgiou or someone in that position would have had permission to go and answer um, a message from a pre-warp civilization. It is kind of cavalier, terms. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I like, I really liked what they did with this episode, mm-hmm. and I, I think what was what was unusual about it is these. Obviously, these short tracks are short. This one, by the time we reached the end of it, I felt quite a lot had happened, and I really wanted to watch more of it. Um, yeah, I, I honestly I, thought this could have been an episode. Yeah, exactly. It almost felt like we were being sort of kind of brutally teased by this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have to say, I think in terms of its substance, rather than um, anything else, I actually think Brightest Star out of the four of them is is probably the best. I would agree. Um, so the, uh, the thing that sticks out to me, and I, and I agree with your point that Saru's sort of atheism, uh, mm. is what has allowed him to surpass everybody else. Although they, they do go out of their way to, to let you know that, um, Saru is special in this sense because he notes that he was not raised this way. There is something about him, though, that made him question everything. Like, why Why are we doing this? What is the end goal? Like, what do, what do we get out of this sort of thing? And nobody else in his village thinks this way. He's the only one who uh, even tries to, to think in this manner. And um, Did you not think Sir, the, there was a suggestion that Serana did, but kind of fought it back a bit? You know what? Yeah. Well, I mean, because being in the... I guess within the the Saru's sphere of influence, mm-hmm. I would imagine that yeah, that there's probably like a a bit of it, but maybe she doesn't have the 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 courage that Saru does to to follow through in actually doing something about it. I, I, there's definitely people that I know that are smart enough to know that they're in a shit situation, but they don't have the conviction to fight through it i i've been there uh at at times uh like personally like you just know you know what you have to do but you're not sure if you can do it uh that sort of thing and uh saru is the is the one who is like i'm I'm just gonna do it he got his hands on this uh the baul technology and tinkered with it presumably for quite some time uh, until he learned it and then was able to use it, which, of course, uh, captured the uh, attention of Starfleet, because this is, of course, a pre-warp civilization. He's the only Kelpian to have ever done anything like this. And it, uh, and, and that also uh, provided at least a partial reason as to why Starfleet would 
contact him because it seems like such a, you know, Mm. um, his society hasn't advanced. He's just advanced way beyond his society and that caught their attention. So at least in that regards too, it, it can work as to why they might, even if they did have rules about not contacting pre-warp civilizations that mm. maybe, um, and I think maybe she even mentions that he might be a special, a special case or something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was, uh, an excellent episode. Uh, and I was totally not expecting, it sounded like life as a Kelpian was, was not good. But to see that it not only was it not good, but they that they were basically institutionalized. It was, it was essentially uh, institutional slavery for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, they willingly gave themselves up as food for this alien species, and not in a way that they had no choice and they were hunted and there was nothing they could do, but that they were willingly giving themselves up. Uh, it's something much more sad about that uh i think so uh, and you could even see it like at the very beginning when they show this happening and it's saru's father who is the priest-like figure who yeah. leads all these people like as soon as they're gone as soon as the baul transporter device or whatever it is takes them uh you know they give they give that guy a look on his face where he's clearly like you know not happy about this but it is what it is. Well, that's um, what I mean. He he's he has a cynical awareness that this isn't anything religious at all. Uh, it's masquerading as that. I think that's implied through yes. his response to it. Yeah. Yes. Um, I thought this was an excellent short. Prob- mm. Yeah, and I would say without a doubt, I would say the best of the four. Uh, and I liked all four of them, but I think this was uh, the the for sure the best Star Trek related one. I think some people might make some arguments for Calypso, which was a very good story, but still in my book, didn't feel like an episode of Star Trek. Um, I mean, it could have been an episode of Star Trek, but they abandon all pretenses that all of the dressings that make (laughs) something a Star Trek episode. Uh, You can go back and listen to the last episode of I'm a Doctor Not a Podcast to hear our discussion on that one, but uh, what would you uh, what would you give the brightest star? Unless, of course, you have uh, any more thoughts. Um, I, I don't. I, I'm slightly curious as to uh, some of the reviews on this because uh, a lot of people are saying it ignores canon um, from the books, and there is some truth to that. Uh, it depends. I, I've never really been quite clear on how canon the books are actually for mm, for Discovery, but not. Well, you mean the books of Discovery? Yeah. I'm not positive. Well, so uh, first... Well, first... Well, all three of them really cover a fair bit about Saru. Um, But I... Yeah, there are bits that actually are in fairly solid conflict with that. Okay. Uh, but, But I remind myself that, you know, this isn't a review of the entire canon of Star Trek, because if you start doing that, you'll go completely insane. Absolutely. Um this as an episode of Star Trek Short Treks its own series in its own right uh, as an adjunct to Discovery mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to say is pretty damn flawless uh, yeah. I give this four and three quarters because when you review it for what it is I think it pretty much nails it Yeah, 
Uh, I was wavering between four and three quarters and five. Mm-hmm. So was I, in truth, yeah. Um, I'm, honestly, I'm still not really sure where I'd settle on it. You know what? I guess if it was going to be five, I'd know it'd be five mm-hmm. already. So let's go with four and three quarters as well. But a really good little episode that I thought, just like you, could have been a full-length episode. Uh, or at yeah. least this could have been, uh, or at least these 16 minutes could have been spliced throughout an episode that was Saru-focused. Mm-hmm. Something involving his past where we get flashbacks or something. Uh, and maybe we will get a Saru episode like that in the future where you could hypothetically take this short and splice it throughout as flashbacks and it would fit within the story. I'm sure at some point uh, we will get an episode dealing with Saru and, and his past. I'm sure at some point this will come back uh, at a point. Well, we've now had the sort of baiting, haven't we, of the idea that uh, he's been told he will um, never return home. So yeah. clearly we are going to see Kaminar again at some point, aren't we? Yeah, and uh, at some point you could bring up the Ba'ul again. Like the yeah. discovery could come yeah, across. Yeah, the Federation, them. yeah, well, the Starfleet clearly knew about them at that so yes um okay so before we talk about the next episode let's take a shuttle ben over to our sponsors i'm gonna just do these star trek like little little star trek word games as often as possible on this show uh adam tickets cinemageekly.com slash adam tickets or click the adam tickets link at the top of the page to pick yourself up some movie tickets or gift card for the movie fan in your life uh, okay, so let's talk about we've now taken the shuttle back to the ship after that very short <laughs> sojourn to the sponsors. Uh, let's talk about the final short episode for mm. the Escape Artist, directed by the man who starred in it, Rain Wilson, and uh, written by Michael McMahon, the guy who is writing the animated, uh, soon to be animated Star Trek series, Lower yeah. Decks. Uh, so there's not much, there's actually not much of a real story here. To me, this felt like the most short film, uh, short story worthy story out of all of these, because this really yeah. did feel like a good short story because there's not a whole lot to it. Uh, Haircourt Fenton Mud is, he's been captured and his bounty has been picked up by a Tellerite bounty hunter. I'm still not sure how I feel about how the Tellarites look in this. Because mm. I feel like they did a good job of modernizing the makeup of the Tellarites in Enterprise. Yes. And now they definitely look way more warthoggy in Discovery. Uh, but again... Oh, you can't please some people, can you? But again, Ben, perhaps the Tellarites are not a monoculture. Perhaps there are different looking Tellarites, and this is how some of them look. And that's okay with me. Uh, so, uh, most of the time he spent with a Tellarite, he's trying to con his way out of capture. He's trying to get him to join with him. He's trying to accomplish anything you can. And while this is happening, we kind of get like side flashes to a whole bunch of other times he's tried this with various other captors. Klingons, uh, uh, Orions. He almost tricks an Orion male into doing it for the female. Oh, those pretty but silly Orion slave boys, eh? Yes, indeed. 
You almost mm-hmm. fell for it until the much smarter Orion slave girl showed up and was like, dude, what the fuck? Uh, mm-hmm. Talked him out of it. There was another alien. I didn't actually recognize the species of the other alien, but it's like a diminutive. They're smaller in size, mm-hmm. but apparently powerful because <laughs> she was just flinging him around on this chain. Uh, she looked like a really quite badly burned Klingon, actually. A little bit. <laughs> an overdone Klingon. Mm. Uh, he tries and tries and tries, and the Tellarite will just not give in. And every now and again, it feels like, oh, maybe he's got the Tellarite. He's finally fooled him. He, do- he doesn't. And in fact, the Tellarite has him down on his hands and knees begging, I'll polish your tusks. I'll I'll clean your your ship. I'll braid your little beard. I'll That's braid your little beard. Yeah. Oh, it was so good. And he's like, uh, keep talking. And he's like, up oh, we're here. He, he's taking them to their Federation ship. And he takes them to the Federation ship, beams them over. And uh, he's like, you know, I, you know, I want my money. How are you going to get me the money or whatever? And uh, the captain of the ship. Is just like, I don't know what to tell you, buddy, but uh, you've been fooled. This is not Harry Mudd. He's a, an android with like a fake, you know, a, like a real life exterior skin, but he's pre-programmed to, to say certain things and act a certain way. He takes them, he walks them to the, like the brig or whatever. He pushes a button and opens the door. And in this room are like half a dozen other hairy muds all just yapping to each other saying the same things over and over again and the Tellarite is shocked he can't believe that you must be real and he accidentally or whatever pulls off his hairy muds arm and then they just start repeating the same phrase <laughs> over and over to each other uh, and then we get uh, they do like a little smash cut to this ship, uh, and you see this this female bounty who we see at the beginning. She's like handing Harry Mud over to the Tellarite. Of course, it is not uh, a female bounty hunter or anything of the sort. It is the real Harry Mud living on this ship with a bunch of Harry Mud androids, and he gets a dis- he not a distress signal, but he gets a he gets a hail, and he answers it. And then we find out what he's been doing. He's created all of these these android clones of himself. And he is purporting to be somebody who has Harry Mud and is willing to sell Harry Mud to them so they can collect the bounty. And he's just making money off of people by conning them into thinking that they've captured Harry Mud. Uh, so, what did you think of the escape artist, Ben? Um, Harry Mud is the is the Danny Pink of Star Trek uh, to me. <laughs> um, but I will say this, this really pleases me for one solid reason. Mm-hmm. The writing in this episode really does bode well for the animated series. I agree. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's all sorts of holes and problems in this episode. It's, it, it, uh, it's nicely made. It's funny in places. Uh, you could, uh, the reason that you could tell that Harry Mudd wasn't the real Harry Mudd right from the very first moment is he was at least 15% less annoying than he usually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I don't like uh, Rain Wilson's performance as Mudd. I, I said that in the, the main series. I, mm-hmm. uh, 
it was funny. it was hard not to like this episode because it was funny um but i i struggle to take this one even remotely seriously in any sense uh yeah it was a nice a nice punchline it it basically was little more than a a sort of a, a slightly elaborate gag reel um mm-hmm. but it was it was it was fun while it lasted i agree with what you say about it being uh, a, a sort of tight short story the the payoff i think most people spotted the payoff coming not you know not right at the start but probably at a comfortable time during it um it was yeah it was it was it was fun i think it's least artistic in any sense of any of these uh shorts but as i say in terms of the ability to write a short episode with a start and middle and an end and some kind of vague point to it uh that's you know that's what's required of an animated series writer so mm-hmm. i am delighted to see that this writer knows what they are doing yeah. uh previously i think i'd said that i'm not desperately interested in the animated series of star trek uh that that's forthcoming obviously i'll watch it because obviously i'll watch it mm-hmm. but this has perhaps caused me to raise an eyebrow and think okay that's could you be know, good. This, it was a good showcase for for a writer of something that's coming up. So yes. yeah, this 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 was an art. I'm not sure it was entirely comedy. It was what it was, and it was perfectly adequate at what it was. Yeah, uh, I would say your enjoyment of this really hinges on what you think of Mud as a character overall. Cruel. Yeah. Uh, if you are a fan of some of those Roger C. Carmel episodes. Uh, of Star Trek, and they have their moments. I will say that. Uh, uh, I I would say especially in the Android episode, where they're all just trying to confuse the androids, is some of the most ridiculous Star Trek I've ever seen, and that includes uh, Spock writing... Or, or no, 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 not Spock. It was the... I can't remember his name, but... Uh, um, they had the little person riding Kirk like a horse and Kirk pretending to be yeah. uh, making horse noises uh, are the two yes. top most ridiculous things I've ever seen in Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I will say this. The writer of this episode, Michael McMahon, clearly has, if he doesn't have a soft spot for the character, he certainly has a grasp for what made something feel like those episodes. Because Rain Wilson's portrayals, I thought were fine, but... Uh, in fact, I thought he actually added like more edge to the mud character. Like, I think it was a better character than in the original series. Oh, that's true for sure. Yeah, uh, but um, they didn't really. It didn't really feel like something from that character. Whereas this short certainly felt like a story from that character. This felt like a a modern like a modernized, updated version of something that character from that show. Uh, mm-hmm. would be up to. I mean, obviously they made the callbacks to the to the androids. One of the androids was actually wearing something similar to like the coat mud from original series would wear that had the the little tassels on the shoulder and stuff. I spotted that. I quite like that. Yeah, yeah I thought that was a, you know, a really good attention to detail. The funniest line is the one we mentioned, which is the, I'll even braid your little beard, which... <laughs> really got a chuckle out of me. Uh, it wasn't super duper funny, uh, but it was, you know, if you don't hate mud, it was good. And I would say if you can't stand mud, like Ben can't stand mud, 
then he thought it was perfectly fine. So like at I would say like at a at worst, it's not bad. Mm. It wasn't the best of the four. Um, I think it might actually. I, I actually don't think it's my bottom. To be honest, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I would put the Tilly episode on the bottom or not because I love Tilly so much. Uh, but I feel like yeah. this was a much better short. Um, I feel like there's just like a lot of stuff in that first short that I'm still asking questions about. <laughs> That's a very fair point. Yeah. Uh, but I like this. Uh, and I think it was a good, uh, I was definitely more curious to see the, the writing and, uh, I, cause I wanted like an idea of what the animated show might feel like. And if it's something like this, I, I think the writing was good. Uh, yeah, in this episode, and it definitely feels like it came from somebody who really knows and loves their Star Trek. So, uh, what would you give the Escape Artist, Ben? Um, actually, with your reasoning there, you bought it an extra half a mark uh, from me. So I'm going to say three and a quarter. Ah, well done, well mm-hmm. done, the Escape Artist. Uh, yeah, uh, I gave this one three and three quarters. I, I thought it was a, a good time, a good time to be had by. Most, <laughs> if not all. Good time to be had by most, if not all. Um, all right, so before we go, we are on the verge of season two of Star Trek Discovery. There's been uh, a boatload. So there's been a boatload of uh, behind the scenes videos. There's been a couple of trailers. We haven't really discussed the trailers uh, or anything like that. Um, what. What is standing out to you for the second season? And of course, uh, for me, my high point will be welcoming Aurora back to the show so we can all talk about Star Trek again. But Absolutely. We've missed her, haven't we? Indeed, yeah. She's on, a, she's on assignment back at Starfleet Academy. So, Well, you know, um, I'm down a science officer, so she can chop-chop. Indeed. Um, yeah, uh, what am I looking forward to? I think the, uh, the trailers, I know... Obviously, you can dissect them to the nth degree, and people have, haven't they? Uh, and pulled out all sorts of exciting theories. And I'm pretty sure some of the kind of common prevailing theories theories are probably right. Um, but I, I think, unlike the trailers for the first season, where I was so worried about what this might actually be that I really was kind of into dissecting it. I'm kind of not that worried about dissecting this. I, I, I now have quickly come to trust them enough to say, "All right, surprise me." So I've taken them on face value. Uh, the only thing I think most Star Trek fans are a little bit worried about is the portrayal of um, of Spock. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've got a slight taste of what we're getting there, and um, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. And we don't really know uh, much about Spock in this timeline pre the Cage. So. Again, it depends if you've read any of the Discovery books, because uh, you will know a bit of um, this era Spock through there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, I'm not, I'm not that worried about that. And I, you know, they know what they're doing for God's sake, and they don't. Do you know what? If you're worried about putting Spock in and whether you can do it justice and everything else, there's a simple answer. That's you don't include him as a character. So the fact that they are doing means that they have a pretty robust plan. Yeah. Um, I already feel, I think we spoke over the last season of this a little bit about not having quite connected with um, some of the other characters yet. 
Now, Pike, we've kind of got a pre-built uh, Star Trek um, figure in Pike, so that's yeah. useful. And from the little clips we've seen, actually, he he has a familiarity to him. There is an element of this portrayal of Pike that already looks um, like the Pike uh, of um, several decades ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm quite pleased with that. I'd still like to see a bit more from our supporting cast of Bridge Crew. Um, but our, our regular leads, of course, are all back. And I'm pleased to see them back, including um, Klingon Fandango. And <laughs> I... I, I must admit, I was the slight tingle of excitement at the idea of the um, apparently female figure uh, with various things coming from it, walking through the red uh, anomaly. An awful lot of people thinking Borg Queen. Mm -hmm. uh, now there are some other theories kicking around instead, which are probably more likely, but um, oh gosh, I still would be quite delighted if it were. Yeah. Uh, Section 31, all we really know season in terms of any massive substance is that we know that section 31 plays a huge part in this season yeah um that is a big departure from where they began with discovery because of course they were saying oh we're not going to do much wibbly wobbly timey wimey well mm. section 31 aren't exclusively about wibbly wobbly timey wimey but they are you know mm. quite familiar with it so um, I presume Section 31 is going to be characterized in a far more evil uh, sort of way at this stage. Something more um, akin to Deep Space Nine? Or there are. Yeah, I, I would imagine. Wing of Starfleet? I would think so. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of pleased at the idea that if we have uh, some sort of introduction of. Um, section 31 and maybe some suggestion of wibbly wobbly timey wimey. It, it provides a gateway as Star Trek has done for a long time now to little crossover um, sort of episodes and so on. I would imagine and if I'm going to say this right now most likely um, non-captain member of Star Trek cast to end up in Discovery mm. uh, from the Voyager era is uh, Jerry Ryan. Ah. Because well, it's been fairly strongly indicated that she joined Section 31. Mm -hmm. um, we know that she's been a temporal agent. Um, she potentially is of considerable use to uh, the uh, slightly darker side of Starfleet circa this era. Yeah. Um, and all of those things aside, we also know Jerry Ryan is a massive Star Trek nerd and desperately wants to be back on Star Trek. Yeah, and, and so yeah, absolutely. So, I honestly don't have a lot of. I'm kind of just sort of flying free with this season. I'm just sort mm -hmm. of just going to welcome it in with whatever they give me. That I, suggests you trust them as well now. I, don't, I uh, the the only thing that that's even on my mind is: do they show us the interior of the Enterprise this season at all? Yeah, they will. Okay, because I'm. I'm curious. I I'm cur I'm pretty sure it's going to look like how Discovery looks, and then the question becomes: before the end of the season, does Pike say something about I'm thinking about you know like a a retro look or something like that uh, to d squeeze it into canon somehow? Well, a number of the designers and writers have said, yeah, we know that there is a massive discrepancy here between spaceships then and now and whatever yes. and we are aware of it and don't worry we have a plan 
That's what they're saying. I look forward to finding out what that plan is and then laughing squarely at it. There's some (laughs) new fleet admiral, Ben, that comes in who's just, they're they're aesthetic. It's just all about retro aesthetic. I do not have the time to come and faff around designing Starfleet bridges, let me tell you. You know what it is? It's Tom Paris. Uh, Uh... He comes back in time and then he has to redesign all of the ships, you know, and the Captain Proton 19... Uh, well, no, he's, he's since moved on from the 1930s and 40s future aesthetic. He's now mm. uh, big into 50s and 60s future aesthetic and redesigns all of the ships. And I think that, uh, that'll that seal up all the uh, all the loopholes there. Pretty much, yeah. That, that uh, finish it, yeah. So before we take off, uh, have you seen, because it's back, have you seen mm. uh, either of the first two episodes of The Orville? I have. I've seen both. I mean, obviously, for legal reasons, I haven't. <laughs> because so, yeah. it's not available uh, in the United Kingdom. That's correct. Uh, very soon on Fox, I think, over here. Yeah, um, I've seen them both as well. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have it back. It has almost abandoned all pretenses at being Family Guy in space, uh, which I'm pleased about. Yeah, it has dropped. I mean, look, some of it is definitely still there, but they're yeah. finding ways of melding... Like, the second episode... Yeah, uh, the ship almost gets destroyed because Bordas has a porn addiction, which <laughs> you know is like that. Definitely sounds like some sort of like if Family Guy did Star Trek or something. Like one of wait, wait, wait. The driver for the first episode is that they've got to all go somewhere. Um, someone needs to take like a twenty-five minute. That was Bordas again. Yeah, yeah, Bordas like had to uh, once a year, like how Vulcans have to mate every seven years. Mocklins every year have to urinate once. And it's like, but they weirdly... I mean, I felt like that before, but... But they you know. weirdly, because it's like a snickering, you know, little kid, like, aha, they have to go do this because he has to go pee. But, like, they weirdly phrase it in a way that makes it sound, you know, as an alien culture, feasible. They only do this once a year, and they think of it as, like, a cleansing of their soul, or their, like, a fresh start, or a new slate or something they are but the best thing about the way they dealt with that is mm-hmm. the fact that if they were doing that storyline in season one yeah you i guarantee the bit where he stood on the end of the cliff with them stood behind him uh, behind him rather they would have done some gigantic know. spray of liquid oh or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah they would they and, did not do you know that. what i am almost certain that there is a cut of that somewhere where they did <laughs> they did that, do it that. and they're like you know what nah yeah, they, um, they clearly pulled it because otherwise that shot would have just been weird. But the um, uh, but the so like the Bordis porn addiction is hmm. tied to his uh, his relationship troubles with Clyden. Yeah, and this goes back to the the pretty good episode. I thought it was a pretty good episode they had about uh, when they had their daughter. But that's right. Mocklins only ever have boys, and if one is born female, they do they reassign its gender via surgical procedure and they they change it against the you know the child never gets a, a say in the matter uh that sort of thing and Bordis did not want to do it and he thought by the end of that episode that you know they would be okay but here we find in season two in this episode that he's clearly not over it and uh, because Clyden wanted the one thing and he wanted the other it affected yeah. their relationship very heavily. Like they frame it so it's not so heavy with the silly device that he's kind of become addicted to porn, and 
you know, there's a virus on the porn thing and it like affects the, the whole ship. By the way, that whole episode was gorgeous looking. I don't know if oh, they yeah. got more yeah. money for their CG for the second season, but it was... Oh, I would say so, yeah. It was beautiful looking. It was a stunningly good looking episode. Uh, they off, they also hammer home this thing with the, this planet being uh, uh, basically absorbed by its sun as its sun is growing too large, and they find out that there's a small population of people living underground, and Mm-hmm. They try to save them all, but they can only save a few, that sort of thing. Uh, it's actually a really good episode. I think it's off to a really good start. And you're right. They they have toned down. Uh, the humor is still there. But as I thought, like, I, I thought they were going to go from a, a more mash type uh, dichotomy yeah. between humor and seriousness. And it feels like they're getting there. Yeah, it's it's well crafted. It's um, it's a bit of light relief. I must admit, I slightly miss uh, it sitting immediately alongside uh, Discovery in terms of its broadcast schedule. Because yeah, certainly for season one of Discovery, you needed the light relief of uh, and perhaps the familiarity yeah. of. Uh, but do you know what? I don't think Discovery is going to be serving us up quite the same degree As of bleak. Yeah. dark this series so yeah I, i'm enjoying this it, it's it still is a love letter to uh to star trek next generation but i'm happy mm. for that to keep existing because because at the minute they're still doing it properly we're only um you know one season and two episodes in and it'll get old faster than um next gen did clearly indeed but for now crack on um, okay, so that's the show for this week. Head on over to cinemageekly.com to check out the archives of the show. And, of course, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. Uh, just search for I'm a Doctor, Not a Podcast. Hit subscribe. Uh, we're going to go send uh, an, an urgent distress signal to Starfleet headquarters and see if we can't get Aurora back. Uh, ben, of course, will be here as well. Uh, and myself. Uh, in a little little more than a week's time, I hope, yeah. uh, to talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 1, Ben. It has a title. It's called Brother. <laughs>